doesn't work. Well, Jesus spoke to thousands without a microphone, so we'll, we're going to try to imitate him. Oh, man, it got hot quick. Is it hot today? Is it just me? It's not just me. It's just you hot? Everybody else hot? Sometimes when you're big, you just get hot all the time, so it's like if you, I'm just hot. just want to make sure it's not just me. So if y'all sweat, then it's either the spirit or we need to adjust the uh, temperature back there. So, so somebody serve all of us. And if you see people doing this throughout the sermon, <laughs> go back there and dial it down a couple pieces. All right, we have been in a series called Happy Anniversary, which is basically talking about COVID has been just over two years. And we've wanted to talk about for a long time the psychological impact of COVID on us, on our worldview, on our walk. And many of these things have been understandable. Uh, we talked about in the first message just the reality from thinking about Kobe Bryant's death and then all of a sudden all of us having to grapple with the reality that there's this virus that we could catch that could could kill us. And for many people, most people don't spend a lot of time thinking about them dying. It frightened all of us to varying degrees. We all had to adjust to this virus. The whole world shut down for a period of time and we found ourselves locked in, trapped in. That led us to focus more on ourselves than probably any other time because you're just trying to stay alive. Totally understandable. The psychological impact of thinking that you're going to die, even as a believer, can take a toll on anyone. Once that began to set in, we got used to the distance that we needed to have to be safe. But that distance also created in us different expectations, different ways of thinking about our responsibilities as Christians. We were afraid to die, or to some degree afraid to live. I made jokes about how much my wife would wipe down everything to the point where the wipes needed to be wiped down. And I was like, babe, I don't think we're catching COVID like that. But it was a reality. We had to talk about that. And, and one of the ways that it impacted us that we looked at in the first message is this drift. Have we drifted from what we used to consider faithful, consider normal? Have we drifted from the desire to be around people with a subtle feel? We looked at the psychological impact from the experts as they talked about the, the, the impact of thinking other people are a threat to your safety simply by catching a virus and how that creates a distance psychologically and both physically, and it's the opposite of the way we are created. This was unavoidable. It just happened. This was no one's fault. No one did anything wrong. It was just our reality. We were reacting to, from our perspective, the possibility of catching a disease and dying gruesomely. 
But in that, we looked at how that, that shaped us, it affected us, it changed the way we thought, it made us inwardly focused. And so we started to create expectations for the way that we want to interact with God in a way that's more comfortable for us, even as things lifted, as, as things changed, as things have improved. The fear of COVID slowly changed into the fear of the comfortability that COVID provided. And it removed from us the, the intentionality and the investment. We talked about Zoom fatigue and just constantly looking at screens. Who wants to look at me on a screen all day? Who wants to sit for an hour? The disconnect from not being in an environment like this. There's a disconnect in the change of investment. You see, if someone walks up to you and gives you a CD and says, hey, can you listen to this? And it's free. And you're like, all right, I'll check it out. And it's terrible. You'll throw it out. Or you'll give it to somebody else. You know, them white elephant gives us what they call them. Hey, I think I might, you, I, something you might like. Until they listen, and then y'all are offended because they think, why would you think I would like this? <laughs> Hopefully I've never done that with my music. <laughs> but there's no investment. But if you pay $10, $20 for that CD, you're going to feel differently if you don't like it. Why? Because you spent $20. You might listen to more of it than you would just to see if it picks up. <laughs> yeah. Song eight. All right, man, let me, you know. Right, I'm going to go to at least, how many on this? All right, I'm going to go to at least 12. Let's hit a 12 song. We don't like it down. Because it's an investment. See, what COVID took from us is the investment. Because we were so used to doing, coming to church. But it's an investment to get up every Sunday to make sure that you're ready on Saturday night. You're not up too late or out too late on Saturday night to come to church on Sunday. You got to get up, get dressed. Possibly put makeup on. If you have children, you got to get them ready. Get in the car, all the hustle and bustle. Drive to the church, park, walk in, weather conditions included. Come into the church, see people, do the talk to people, sing together, give together, listen to the word together, and then afterwards, do communion together, listen to people ask questions together, maybe have lunch together, meet new people together. All of that is an investment. And it's an investment that we accepted. It was life. The beauty of church is not who sits in the pulpit, but who sits in the pews. I don't make this church good. You do. But that investment was gone. And no matter how you slice it, you know how many times I've led a meeting on Zoom, logged off, and that was it. You know how many times I've sat here and talked to people for 30, 45, 50 minutes that I would have never talked to? It's an investment. And COVID, to some degree, robbed us of that investment. You don't just come to church. You're investing time, money, energy. It's an investment. 
And when we think about the ways that we live in the cultural world, all the noise, the social media syndrome, this is supposed to be a place of solace. But it became challenging. The psychological impact of COVID affected all of us to varying degrees. I want to read psychological impact one more time on how it affected a particular demographic so that you know that these statements aren't just being said, just to be said. And I know people have friends who fall into this category. On March, in March 2022, 42% of pastors considered resigning up from 29% who did the same in January 2021, according to data collected by Barna. The three biggest reasons clergy cited were immense stress, feelings of isolation and loneliness, and political division, according to Barna. While some faith leaders are just thinking about leaving, others have quit or retired early. The wave of clergy departures could have a unique impact on American society as pastors leave congregations there are questions about who will replace them. I haven't lost confidence in the work Jesus does, but I've lost confidence in the work that the church does, says one pastor. There's a certain level of frustration built into the job, noted the Reverend Adam Wyatt, who has been researching pastoral burnout in recent months. You're preaching and you want to see the gospel changing people's lives, and as you get to know people, you realize they are struggling with a lot of different things. It's not just sin. It's life. He said, in normal times, there's also some natural stress that comes from wrangling with a variety of congregational issues, from what type of music should be played during services to the sort of outreach the church should engage in. But the pandemic years, which have also included the racial reckoning that followed George Floyd's death and an election cycle that put additional stress on religious leaders across the board, said the Reverend Wyatt. Clergy have felt like no matter what they chose to do, someone was, was upset with them. Close the church and go online, complaints. Reopen and ask congregants to mask, complaints. Don't ask people to mask, complaints. Fail to articulate support for one political party or another, people walk. <laughs> Amid the pandemic prior to the 2020 election, we had a lot of families who left our church because I wouldn't endorse, embrace, or affirm Donald Trump, said Charman, who added that people are leaving for congregations that pander to their political leanings rather than making lifelong commitments to a church where their views might be challenged. On top of all this, the pandemic has meant that religious leaders are now expected to function as de facto experts in public health, technology, and social media. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I failed on some of those. While the responsibilities of the job have increased, the rewards have decreased. The small, spontaneous, and positive interaction with church members at previously kept clergy going, stopping in a hallway to chat with a congregant. A warm smile disappeared from the work over the past two years. The pressure has added up. Pastors under 40, particularly likely to give up on congregational ministry, said the Reverend Wyatt. He cited anecdotal evidence that more students are entering seminaries, but less are training for pastoral ministries. He and others also pointed to congregations that have had job openings for extended periods and have been unable to replace pastors who have left. Experts and religious leaders alike say that, along with posing new challenges, 
the pandemic also exposed or exacerbated pre-existing tensions in congregations. By the grace of God, I cannot identify with a lot of this. But I would be lying if I said I can't identify with any of it. That was a psychological impact. Now let me give you a biblical perspective on why I think this happens to people in leadership. And this was about pastors, but this really is about anyone who has a responsibility over other people. Teachers, parents. This extends to not just pastors. This extends to a lot of people. If you have responsibility for other people, man, the last two years has definitely strained the gnat. Let me give you a biblical perspective on why I think this is important and why this happens. This is what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Paul was leaving. He knew he was going to die. So he established elders in this church in Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, Ephesians. And this is what he said to him, to them, as they were crying as he was leaving. Here's what he said to them. Therefore, I declare to you that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid teaching did I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on your alert, be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. You know, Paul didn't say this to the whole church. He only said this to the elders of the church. And the reason why is because the burden is different. The responsibility is is different. It's a different responsibility that I have than you do. And this isn't, oh, I'm better than you. No, it's just I have a different responsibility, a different burden than you do. Many of us are friends with other people in the church. And when someone's kid is sick or even going to the hospital, you will get prayer requests. Hey, can you pray for me? Such and such my child is. And we love each other. We'll pray for each other, right? They're going to the hospital. Most of us will fall asleep that evening and sleep pretty well. But the parents of that child will be up all night in the emergency room. Do you know why? Because the burden is different. You love that child too. You will pray for them. You might even go to the hospital. But the burden is different. That parent will not sleep all night because the burden is different. Or it will be challenging for them to sleep. Every sound, they'll wake up, is everything okay? Well, the rest of us, including myself, we'll have prayed for them, may feel it, but then we're going to sleep. Get up the next morning, take my kids to school, check in, how are things going? Rough night. 
I didn't have a rough night, even though I love their children, because the burden is different. The reason why I'm telling you this is because when you hear a series like this that challenges some of the things that have we've, we've adopted because of COVID, please understand that the burden is different. Normally, when a person struggles with something about a church or anything, they struggle with how it affects them personally. They usually don't say, hey, I've been praying, doing all this, thinking about the church. I don't have that luxury. I can't say, oh, I don't like this. We're just changing it. I have to think about how does this affect 200 people? The burden is different. It's not better. It's just different. Paul said he declared the whole plan of God. That means he has to declare both God's grace and God's judgment. The burden is just different. It's not better. It's just I have a burden. Mike has a burden that many of you don't have. Paul said, be on your guard for self and others. The burden's different. I can't fall away spiritually and effectively lead this church. I can't drift. You can. You shouldn't, right? But I can't because it affects hundreds of people. Paul said, shepherd those who are purchased by his blood. You, all of us at times, can forget that we're purchased by his blood. But I can't forget that. I have no choice but to remind you of that. He said, watch out, wolves are among us. I have to listen to every concern, complaint. Is it affecting other people? Are people changing what they believe now? Are people living immoral that may make other people be desensitized to their own sinfulness? Are there people, and wolves aren't even just about this church. I've been really concerned in my 14 years of being a pastor that there are wolves in this church, but now we live in a social media age where other people profess to believe the same things you do, but they might think something way different than what we think. So the wolves may not be in your, in your, in your D group, but they might be who's on your timeline. He says, be alert. Paul said, I warned each of you for three years. Warn in this context, it means to counsel in terms of someone's behavior. Admonish. I had to challenge you for three years. Most pastors I know don't like to do that, especially in this day and age, because people will get offended. If you say something with a little too much inflection, I have a problem with it. And that's fair. But when you have a burden and you're worried about a church that you love, and you know you only have one time a week to speak to everyone, the burden is different. So as you process the last couple messages of this series, 
And if something offends you, I apologize on the front end. But please understand, I do not have the same burden that you do. You can just decide, I don't want to be here anymore and leave. I can't do that. If I'm offended, I have to work through it. I have to. Because I have to remind you not to be offended, knowing that reminding you not to be offended is offensive to someone. <laughs> the burden is different. It's not better. I just want you to keep this in your mind as you process that all the psychological impact, pastors have not been exempt. Have not been exempt. We've been talking about drifting into immaturity, which, which I said COVID has explored in the last two years. Today, we want to combat that by talking about what is specific maturity look like. We don't want to just keep talking about these grandiose ideas of the negative. Let's, what does it look like to be mature? Let's be specific with our maturity. What does it look like? Two verses today are our primary passage, 1 Corinthians 10. Two verses, 23 and 24. I'll read these and explain what we're going to do. Hear the verses. Beginning in verse 23, and I quote, Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Two verses. Now, the immediate context of these verses, why Paul wrote these, he's talking to the church in Corinth. And this church was wild. <laughs> There's a church on Good Luck Road called Corinthians Church. I think they should change the name. <laughs> That's not a real strong church in the Bible. I would change the name because it looks like it's dying. And it might be the name, fam, if you were asking me. The Corinthian church was a very worldly, immature church. Very undisciplined. Paul was confident they were believers, but it seemed like they were satisfied with immaturity. They were satisfied with it celebrated it to some degree. So Paul spent the most time with this church out of all the other churches he planted. This church has two letters from him, but he wrote four. We have his second and fourth letter, which we call first and second Corinthians. The immediate context of these two verses is about food and not eating food sacrificed to idols. It's talking about, that's the immediate context. Talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols and, and not burdening people's consciences. That's not what the context we're going to talk about today. Most of us eat meat that's been sacrificed to all types of things. We don't even know what's going on. We just eat it. We're going to look at these two verses principally. And by principally, what I mean is we're not going to apply them to the same circumstances at this original context, but to how we may be able to interact with the principle of everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Let's start with the journey to get to these verses. In chapter 8, 
Paul, speaking on behalf of God, is forming an overarching principle to make seeking the good of the other person in the forefront of their minds. He begins in chapter 8, says a couple things. He says in verse 1 through 3, he says this. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So here's what he's saying. Implicit in this is that, yeah, a lot of people have knowledge. A lot of people have knowledge. You read your Bible, you know this, you read this, you read that. But knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes us more arrogant. He said, but love builds up. The devil knows the Bible better than I do. He can lead a better Bible study than me. But love builds up. He's incapable of that. He says, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know as he ought to know know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So it's not knowledge isn't the identifying marker for anyone. Your knowledge can be divisive. It can puff you up. But love is what builds people together. So you see, he's trying to get in their minds. We need to be thinking about what builds us up together. We're, we're well-versed on what tears us down. He says this. He gets more specific in, in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, 9. He says this. Food will not bring us close to God, even though it's some food that you like. Man, praise God that he made food. <laughs> My mom made a little Mother's Day plate for herself, and she made me one. I was like, man, Mom, I'm just, you know, I'm just glad I'm here with you. Ma. I just felt... He said, we are not worse off if we don't eat. We are not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right, right, to be able to eat or not eat, to be able to eat freely and not have any. He said, be careful if this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. So you see, like, hey, even in the way that you eat something as normal and casual, be careful that the way you even think about it doesn't cause other people to stumble. He's specifically talking about the church and the church, but he extends it beyond that. In, eight, in 1 Corinthians 8, 12 and 13, he says this. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Do you see that? When you sin, you are sinning against Christ when you wound your brother's conscience. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never eat meat again so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. So you see this idea of, listen, y'all need to even think about how you eat. Now, that's not today's message. Especially after that food you made last weekend. That's definitely today's message. (laughs) Then Paul uses himself as an example in 1 Corinthians 9. He says this, Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. For my part, I have used none of these rights. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, that's a right that I have, but I didn't even use it. I didn't even want people to judge me as taking money from people. I made tents for a living, even though God has allowed for the person who you preaches the gospel to be paid as a result of it. But he said, I sacrificed my rights so that I wouldn't offend anyone. 
In 1 Corinthians 9, you all have heard this before, and this has been badly taken out of context and used, but he said this, although I am free from all and not anyone else's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became the weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may, by every possible means, save some. Now I do this because of the gospel so that I may share in its blessings. So here Paul is saying, listen, I will, I will go into any situation and relate to people all over the place, even appearing like I'm among them. I'm with them. So that I can win some of them. Because their salvation to me is more important than me being myself. I'll give the impression that I'm with you. I used to do this all the time in campus ministry, have these conversations with people from all walks of life. And I would just be chilling, looking for an opportunity to be like, all right, let me ask a question about what do they believe. Paul's saying, listen, he's building in the idea that you have to think about how your actions affect other people. Not because other people are more important, but because God, God did the same thing. Because Jesus sought people, set aside who he was fully in order to save people. So he's building in this idea, and when he gets to 1 Corinthians 10, he warns them about being like Old Testament Israel. He warns them about idolatry. And then he gets to what our passage is, which may, is commonly known as Christian liberty. It might even in your Bible be called Christian liberty. And this is essentially, this deals with gray areas that the Bible is not clear on and what a Christian is allowed to do. It's not about what is moral truth, but it's how do I apply the Bible differently? Is this sin or not? And this is what he's dealing with. So he asked this question. He, he, he takes a phrase that is commonly known in Corinth, but he adds a different perspective to it. So he says, and again, in our passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, repeated, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. So we're going to answer four questions to understand this. First, why are there quotations in the verse? In your translation, it'll have quotations. It should have quotations, which says everything is permissible. If it doesn't burn that Bible, throw it away. It's of the devil. Don't give me. <laughs> I know some people who would be just like that. <laughs> Actually, I know. Never mind. All right, so everything is permissible is most likely in quotations in your Bible. That's intentional. It's because he's taking a common phrase used in the city of Corinth that Christians have also adopted. 
Christians have taken this phrase and are using it to determine what they are allowed to do and not do. This isn't the first time he's used this phrase. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, he said it's simply the same thing. Everything is permissible, but I will not be mastered by anything. So this is the second time he's used this phrase because it's an important distraction for the church. And he wants to really deal with the reality of what's happening here. So the phrase is in quotations because he's specifically addressing a particular area of concern that this church has. Second question, what does the phrase mean? Now, we don't say everything is permissible. It's just not how we talk. But the phrase essentially means everything is right, it's authorized, it's permitted, it's proper to do, I'm allowed to do this. That's essentially what it means. In modern day language, it would basically be like saying, well, it's not sinful for me to do that. It's not a sin for me to do this. And this, in our culture, this is actually a helpful phrase. Because it pushes back against other believers imposing the particulars of their conscience on us. I mean, anyone who has a Facebook account or a Twitter account, all of the above, if you're crazy like me and has a few of them, you, put, you post something up, do you know no one asks you, hey, why do you think that way? They just attack what you think. Just come after you. And now you're going back and forth defending what you mean by the. <laughs> I just meant the, fam. Like, why are we... Why are you upset? I said, the. Why didn't you say that, though? What about that? Like, you have a. <laughs> believers impose the particulars of their own conviction on other believers. So this is a helpful phrase. I know legalistic churches that have, 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 have made an application of the Bible equal to what the Bible says. Yeah. The Bible doesn't say you can't go to see movies. But if you say, well, we don't go to movies because we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Well, that's not what the passage is saying. But I've seen people apply it that way and do a lot of damage. This, this, this idea of church hurt, a lot of it has happened because of stuff like this. Let me impose on your conscience. And that's the real challenge. And this is why sometimes I hate offering specifics. Because then it's like, oh, it imposes on people's conscience. Mm -hmm. This is an important reality in the social media syndrome age that we live in. But this is also, on the flip side, a phrase that can be used as a smokescreen to drift from maturity. Well, it's not sinful for me to, to do this. It's not sinful for me to go to the club with my unbelieving friend and have a drink or two. It's not sinful for me not to read my Bible every day. It's not sinful to binge watch a show. And you're right. None of those things in and of themselves are sinful. They're permissible. But that's not the concern. The concern is, it, is it sinful? God offers us a different paradigm to consider. Is it beneficial? 
Is it beneficial? Why is this important? Because our lives are not measured by sin or not sin paradigms. There are other paradigms that we view the world in, like wisdom and folly, right? Wisdom and folly. That's not sin and not sin. Folly isn't necessarily sin. If we're all coming out, if a couple of us go to a restaurant, and we're walking down, and it's 11 o'clock at night, and it's dark, and my car, I parked around the corner, and I'm going over there, and that alley looks dark, and my car's at the end of it. It's not sinful for me to walk down that alley. The question is, is it wise? Especially if you see one or two shady figures back there with hoods on, just walking around back and forth. I'm not going to be like, well, I'm trusting the Lord's sovereignty, so I'm going to go ahead and... Shoot, I'm, hey, listen, I'll call an Uber to pick me up and take me around the corner. <laughs> it's not sinful, right? It's just wisdom and folly. There are other paradigms that we use to process our lives. It's not just about is it sin or not sin. That's a very oversimplified way to view the Christian life. If it was just about sin, then verses like, like Romans 12, 1 and 2, discern what the will of the Lord is, wouldn't exist. Hebrews 11, about faith, it wouldn't exist. There are other paradigms we have to consider, not just is it sin or not sin. The other reason why this is important is because faith is the driving force for us, not facts. And what I don't mean like there's no facts of our faith, but if we're honest, a lot of the things that we call facts are just confident faith. You weren't there to see Jesus rise from the dead. You just have faith that he did. You have no guarantee that when you die, you're going to stand before the Lord and and go to heaven, apart from what he said. Most of our, our, our facts from the Bible are just confident faith. I believe this. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe it. And unless somebody can convince me otherwise, I don't got me not being a Christian until the end. By his grace, I just believe it. I wasn't there, though. I wasn't there. I wasn't there to even see him crucified. I believe it, though. Faith is a driving force for, our, for what we do, not facts. And thirdly, this is the philosophy of the spirit of the age that we live in. Now, they don't say everything is permissible. Here's how the world says it. Live your truth. Right? Live your truth. Talk your truth. Not the truth. Your truth. Because all truths are permissible. Live your truth. Before that, it was do you, fam. Do you. These are all, everything's permissible. Do you. This is the spirit of the age that we live in. But it's not even true because if everyone who really thought live your truth really believed that, then why are you offended when other people have a different truth than you? If live your truth was really true, then there's no reason to be offended at anything anyone ever says because they're living their truth. So what is the purpose of cancel culture if you're to live your truth? What's the purpose of it? The purpose of it is I don't like your truth. I disagree with your truth, and let's punish you for it. But it's the spirit of the age, the age of entitlement. We're entitled to decide good and evil on our own apart from God. 
You know, my body, my choice is not just abortion ideology. It's become the very foundation of the way we live in this culture right now. And it's not just generation whoever. It affects all of us. This sense of I deserve to have what I think is true be applied or believed, accepted, celebrated. So God gives us a different paradigm to evaluate. And this is eternally important because it's in his word. This is what we must keep in the forefront of our minds. Everything is permissible. Not everything is beneficial. So it may not be sinful, but it doesn't mean that it's beneficial. And by beneficial, it just means to be of an advantage to someone, to be better off. Is it beneficial? And if so, how? It's allowable. Sure, it's not sin to do this. But is it beneficial? It's not sinful to not read your Bible. But is it beneficial? It's not sinful to go with an unbelieving friend to a party. Is it beneficial? If so, how? There's no scripture in the Bible that says you can't let your teen date. But is it beneficial? Some of y'all got, it's a lot of young, young kids in here, a lot of little daughters just born. Dad was like, ain't nobody touching my daughter. Wait till she's 15. And boys aren't ill anymore. It's not sinful. It's not sinful to miss church on Sunday. What Bible verse says you can't miss church on a Sunday? A couple Sundays. But is it beneficial? If so, how so? It's not sinful to binge watch a show on the weekend. I know I do from time to time. Watch a couple of episodes in a row. Spent hour and 47 minutes on three episodes. Can't find a verse that says don't do that. But is it beneficial? What if I did that instead of spend time with my family who haven't seen me all week? It's not sinful to want to watch church online. It's not sinful. But is it beneficial? Is it really beneficial? And if so, how so? Now, many of us would probably say, I mean, I think these are beneficial. I mean, you can think about ways that you personally benefit from these things. And you'd be right. And God, knowing that, anticipated that response. And he added another layer to help us consider if it's beneficial. So in the second half of verse 23, here's what God says. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. This is that price is right. Womp, 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 womp. This is when they know they lost. Oh, man. You're looking at Bob like, come on, Bob, one more chance, man. The phrase, but not everything builds up, is another layer to evaluate 
how beneficial something is. How beneficial is it? It's not beneficial to listen to non-Christian music. But some of it does not build up. Not sinful to watch action movies. Took my boys, my oldest son to go see Doctor Strange. We saw it. Wasn't beneficial. I ain't like it. <laughs> they could have done a better job. I'm disappointed. Disney is officially becoming the mark of the beast to me now. And I'm joking, because I will see Thor, Love and Thunder in a couple months. Now, we're laughing, but let me tell you why I build that up, because there's this, there's this idea that Disney is after your children, and no Christian should support Disney. If you, are, if you support Disney, if you haven't canceled your Netflix account, if you haven't done all these things, then you are not a faithful Christian. Where are the Bible? That's not true. That's a, that's a conscious decision. That's a conscious decision. I mean, from my perspective, the world has always been after our kids. I think some parents want the world to do their job so they don't have to. I actually want to have conversations with my son about what he's processing. We'll, hey, what you, he'll, hey, so what are the kids in your school listening to? Was it, we'll ride out and talk. And I love it. I'm not expecting all music to only speak about things that will edify my son. It's my responsibility to make sure I understand what's happening as best as possible, as much as he'll trust and allow me to, so that we can work together on these things. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. This layer does two things. It's a deeper layer. It does two things. One, it challenges the rugged individualism of our societal expectations. You know, you guys have heard me tell stories about India. I went there a couple times, was there for a few weeks each time. And most of the stories I'll tell you are like more supernatural stuff, right? Like I know there's like a theological position of cessationism where the gifts of the spirit don't exist and they, you know, the, the supernatural gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and there are people who think they don't exist today and all that. Go to India, but go to India. I was like, they was all over the place. But, you know, there was other things about India that had nothing to do with supernatural that I realized, wow, I think this affects us in American society. In India, they do not have the concept, at least where I was, southeastern India, Visakhapatnam, nicknamed Vizag. They do not have the concept of personal space. They do not. Under, you know that story where Jesus was walking, right? And the woman touched him and got healed. And he was like, who touched me? And Peter and them were like, what you mean? Lord, everybody's touching you. We all walking out of, what you mean who touched you? He was like, no, power went out for me. Faith touched me, is what he was saying. He wasn't just like, who's physically touching me? They were all, remember when they said they, they had to dig through the roof to put the, 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 the paralytic through because it was just, they don't have the concept of personal space. We were out in India. My buddy was going to buy this, this, this instrument called a sitar, I think. Insane guitar. The thing was big. He had to ship it separately. I was like, man, you better hope you get that thing over. And, and people just walking in the street. And so I'm sitting here looking this way, talking to my friend. 
and I just feel like a hot, it got unusually warm for a second. And I turned around, and there was a dude right there. I was like, whoa, whoa, what, what come man? It was, I'm talking about right here, like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. And so I just went, whoa! And he took off. I'm from D.C., man, don't play with me. It was just the concept of personal space doesn't really apply there. You walking people all on you, man. Hey, they want to walk up to you, talk to you, surround you. It's like, hey, man, ain't it hot to y'all too? It just didn't apply. But man, personal space is the expectation over here. Personal space. In India, you walk into a place, they talk to you. If, they, if, you, can, if you can speak the language, or they'll look at you because they know you can't. Over here, you walk in, depending on where you are, you walk into the elevator, you don't say nothing, the person doesn't say nothing, you just press the button, go up the elevator, and nobody say nothing. You, I'm, I'm by myself, you by yourself, stay over there, stay over here. You ever have this happen? You go into the movies, the theater is not really that packed, and you sit down, and you good, and then somebody that you don't know comes up and sits right beside you. And you're like, Dad, man, what's up? You're like, Dad, what's you? Like, all this space? <laughs> Why are you sitting right here? I get up and move over one. You know, if they move over, now we have a problem. Now it's something else. Going on. The concept of personal space is important to us, but it's not just personal space. It's spilled over to personal faith. So my faith is personal. I've heard people over the years, before COVID, before this, well, I don't got to go to church. I have my own relationship with God. God knows my heart. He knows all this stuff. It's like, oh, that's true. But then are, are the rest of us wrong for wanting to go to church? This idea of personal faith, it's like, it's my faith. It's like, I, you know, I, I know people who don't even share the gospel because it's personal. I don't want to let you know what's going on in my life because it's personal. That personal space has moved into personal faith. And I think what COVID did was exacerbate that. So now it's like, you know what, I don't, you know, I'm not comfortable with fill in the blank. I know of people in our own church who felt like the relationships they had drastically changed because they weren't meeting together in person. It just changed. This layer challenges that rugged individualism because it, it makes us not think about what's only beneficial to us, but what's beneficial to other people. The other thing that this layer does is it redefines beneficial to include beneficiaries. So it's not just what's beneficial to me, it's is this beneficial to others? And this is a paradigm shift for many of us. This is a paradigm shift. And this is some of what COVID did. It, ex it exacerbated us. It pressed us because we were very worried about self, rightly so. Worried about family, rightly so. But a passage like this challenges us. Verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 10, here's what God says. No one is to seek his own good but the good of the other person. So it's not about you. It's not about me. 
Do you know why we haven't even touched this topic the whole two years of COVID? Why we waited this long to even bring it up? I know other churches that pulled their live streams, did stuff on this, and their churches, are, we waited because we wanted to make sure that we weren't imposing what we think on everybody else who had a different perspective. We wanted to be patient. But we felt like, okay, it's been two years. Let's address this. Because we see the concern. This is a paradigm shift because it's not fundamentally how we are. You know, when you, when, you, when you talk to people that have been married like in the first couple years, one of the most common phrases you'll hear is them say like this. Yeah, man, marriage taught me about how selfish I am. And what do you mean by that? Well, because now you have to consider the other person. See, when you were single, right, and it was like, hey, you guys, you want to go to lunch? Yeah, let's go to lunch. I'm with it. Let's go. Let's get it. Then when you get married, you got check in. <laughs> hey, you cool if I go to lunch with them or do you want to come? And if you drove in one car, well, I don't really want to go. I'm tired. I want to go home. Can you ride with them? Uh. I was kind of trying to drive because, you know, I'm, it's like you just realized, man, it just made me realize how selfish I am because I, I realized my desires are competing with my spouse. And then you have children, then you really realize how selfish you are, especially when the babies is little, when they crying. And you're like, sweetie, can you get up and ch check this time? Oh, man, I got to work in a couple of hours, though. Well, I got to work, too. You realize oh, wow, I got to really care about this other person in ways I'm not used to. So for those of you that are engaged, best of luck to you. <laughs> the Lord will be there with you. And if I'm doing your premarital, I will help you, remind you. I failed miserably in this way, and I've had to learn from it. This is a paradigm shift. Because it's difficult, it's difficult to think about how something as personal as me binge watching a show doesn't benefit others. But if I've spent no time with my family or the Lord, how beneficial is that? Don't get me wrong, binge watch your show. But is it beneficial to the people you live with? or to others you could encourage. This is difficult. Because it's difficult to think about how personal, how personal it is to not come to church and how it benefits others. That's a personal thing. Like I, And there are people who probably shouldn't come back for different reasons. We're not talking about that. We're talking about willfully not wanting to come back for convenience purposes. People won't say it like that, but when you really assess the situation, if you'll go out and do all these other things with no mask on, why wouldn't you be here where the Lord is here? That's personal. When you think about, well, how does it benefit others? What if the conversation you had in person on Sunday was what made the difference in a person's life for the rest of that week. Or the information that you got from someone allowed you to pray for them in ways that you would have never known had you watched online, logged off, and did your own thing. 
Was it sinful to not be there? Of course not. But nobody can benefit from you, and you can't benefit from others. That's the beauty of church. You can watch way better preachers online, way better preachers than me online. That doesn't matter. If you think about it, look at the passages of Scripture. Most of the passages of Scripture aren't talking about the preacher and you listening to the preacher. They're talking about what we do with one another. And you will miss, even if you do D group. We've had D group before in person, and then we were done, and then we'd stay there for another hour and just talk. Or stuff came out after group. Let's just be honest, right? Our D groups are not a group of the best friends all together. Our D groups are not with people who they would choose to be with in most situations. You were put in that group to benefit that group, to serve others, and to be served by others. Most people aren't in D groups with their best friends, their besties. And and, uh, shockingly, most people are like, hey, I don't want to be in a group with them. Oh, really? No, no, because I know them. I'm with them all the time. I don't want to shoot. I might have to talk about them in the group. (laughs) I don't want them to know. But how does not being here benefit others? And how does it really benefit you apart from the convenience of not having to do all that you have to do to come here? This is not sustainable. This is difficult because it's very difficult to think about how something so personal as you reading your Bible doesn't benefit others, can benefit others. I am grateful for our church and the structure. and I love the Q&As most times. We're telling the truth. It's Sunday. But the Bible that I've read and studied, listen, this is, pastors get theological training, but that's not what covers you, though. You will forget most of the stuff you learned in seminary because you're doing real life. Most of that stuff doesn't even apply in practical life. That's why people go to seminaries and burn out a couple years later. You know why? Because you get a lot of knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, and then you come ready to teach people the intricacies of the Trinity and how Jesus, the incarnation, and you want to talk about all of these things, and you realize, man, people aren't struggling because they don't understand the Trinity. (laughs) You can't explain. I've never resolved any conflict in any marriage. Well, listen. You know, the father and the son, homoousius, that's the Greek term for saint. I've never done that, right? Seminary doesn't help you care about people and care for people because people have a variety of issues. And it, just like the article, it's not just sin. Sometimes it's just life. Theology is helpful, but it's like, listen, when you look at that, think about what Jesus did. He was always attacking who? The people who were the most theological. Because their knowledge puffed them up. But all that Bible reading I didn't have done is beneficial because in the Q&A, the spirit brings that stuff back to mind. Verses I haven't thought about since I memorized it seven years ago will pop right up. Boom. It's beneficial when you read your Bible because the Lord encouraged you. And now you bring that to your D group and you share with someone. Or someone might share something and you don't want to say it in front of everyone. 
How many of you be like, all right, let's, hey, can you and I go into a breakout room and talk separately? You probably don't. Maybe you'll text them. See, this challenges us because these are personal things. Having to consider not just what is beneficial, but if it's beneficial to others. So it's not just, it's not just, is it beneficial? It's who are the beneficiaries? This is what God is asking us to consider. Not just is it beneficial to you, but is it beneficial to others? Who are the beneficiaries? This is the burden of the pastor. The wildest thing, if you've been in any kind of like a a leadership position over people, the wildest thing will be somebody didn't like what you said and someone was like, I needed to hear that. It's the wildest thing. The same thing that offended someone that I said this, someone else was like, bro, I needed to hear that today. So it's like, uh. The word that you came here, you thought, man, I didn't even feel like coming today, but I'm here. All of a sudden, now you're in a random conversation. I've seen mothers who are struggling with motherhood have random conversations with another mom in the church, and all of a sudden, they walked away. I'm watching them. I'm like, man, they usually leave by now. They over here praying, encouraged, giving each other a hug. Would have never had that conversation. You cannot process your Christian life on if it's allowable, if it's sin or not. Is it building others up, not just you, not just me? Is it building others up? These are God's words. It's God's plan. It's not mine. This has to be a paradigm in our minds if we're going to glorify God. In closing, one commentator said this about these two verses. He said this. By putting the two comments together, Paul means that the only really beneficial thing is that which edifies or builds up the community. The slogan also reflects a concern for liberty, which no doubt began as an authentic corollary of the gospel degenerated into manipulative tool for license. In other words, this, it started off as like a good thing, like, no, everything is beneficial, but not, everything's permissible. That was, it started off as a good thing, like, I can do this in the gospel. There's, there's grace to do this, right? But then it turns into a manipulated tool for license. Sure, I've gone out with friends. I'm not even a drinker, but I've gone out with friends and had a glass of something as we sitting together talking. Big deal. But then later on, that can be like, I'm take, I'm, it's not sending a drink, so I'm, I need to take the edge off. Now I'm drinking more consistently, whatever that is. These things have drifted into what he calls manipulative tool for license, self-gratification, and autonomy. You know what? It's not sin to kiss someone you're in a relationship with. Non-marriage, engage, all of that. It's not sin to do that. But is it beneficial? You're like, yeah, it's beneficial. (laughs) Maybe, but that could lead to compromise because it's not sinful. And I've known people, you've known people 
it led to compromise. Because, yeah, it wasn't sinful to do this, but then it was more difficult to stop doing it, and it led to sinful compromise. He says this, Paul's approach here is negative. Unrestrained and undisciplined affirmations of freedom advantage no one. This strikes at the root. I love this phrase. I'll explain it because this is kind of, I love this phrase. He says, this strikes at the root of a post-Kantian secular ethical liberalism. <laughs> love it. I'll explain what it means in a second. This strikes at the root of a post-Kantian secular ethical liberalism which ranks autonomy both as a right and as an absolute virtue. So he's talking about Immanuel Kant, who was a philosopher who was very brilliant, took on the concept of God and, 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 and the knowledge and challenged a lot of the Christian understanding of the existence of God. And he says that he has in his sort of ideology an ethical liberalism. So ethical is just moral, good and evil, liberalism. So basically, Kant was the live your truth. Live your truth. And that's a right and a virtue. And that is exactly the way our culture sees these things. Live your truth. This happens a lot between parental situations. Well, it's not sinful for me to do this. They don't, it's hard for them to realize that's not beneficial. I'm sorry, you can't listen to that music all the time. You can't just watch this. this. Social media is not sinful. But man, when you read the articles about the impact on young teenage girls, the impact on the anxiety within boys and the image-driven societies even more exploited in social media, no, it's not sinful for you to have this Instagram account or this account or that account. But it's not always beneficial. These are very personal things. To be specific with our maturity, we have to redefine beneficial and the beneficiaries. This is what God is asking of us as we consider. So we want to be very specific. Okay, yeah, it's not sin, but is it beneficial? Don't even say it's not sin, because that can be a justification for, just say, is it beneficial? And is this building up others? From the cheap seats, I don't think if you're able to be here and you're not here, that it's beneficial. I do not. I don't think it's beneficial to you, but it's not beneficial. It's not building us up. It's not building us up. Someone needs what the Lord has given you. Someone needs that. It's not beneficial. To be specific with our maturity, we have to redefine what's beneficial, and who are the beneficiaries. Because everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, the, for these types of verses that help us principally evaluate our liberty, our freedom as Christians, what we're allowed to do and not to do, the, what we call sometimes the gray areas of our faith, that we're allowed to do this or go here or not do this or not do that or 
be with these people and not these people. We're allowed to do these things. They're not in and of themselves sinful. But Lord, help us to be people who don't just consider that oversimplified paradigm. Because that doesn't help us understand anything about a lot of life. Is having insurance sinful or not sinful? Father, help us to to see specifically for each of us what does specific maturity look like and how can we, with the resources that you've given us, and by resources, Lord, you know I mean personality, time, finances, just the way we think about things. What you've invested in us, how do we invest it in others? Lord, for even though Paul was talking about and talking to pastors when he reminded them that these people have been purchased by your blood, all of us have to consider that. That we are sitting beside people who more than likely are genuine believers who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And as we by faith believe that to be true, then by faith, let us think about how does it build others up? How do we build others up? How does our, what we do, build others up? We're not trying to be legalistic. We're just trying to be considerable. We want to consider, as you did, as you say in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, each one should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is your word. This is your way. In your name we pray. Amen.